Welcome to Oncology Morning Commute, managing adverse events that occur with PARP inhibition therapies, what your patients need to know. Morning Commute is developed by Projects and Knowledge, powered by Kaplan, and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from GlaxoSmithKline and Merck Sharp and Dome Corporation. In this podcast, Dr. Robert Coleman and Dr. Kathleen Moore continue their discussion about PARP inhibitors and take it down to the clinical level. Who are the best candidates for these therapies and how are adverse events managed for the best outcomes? Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash ovarian cancer 2. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Coleman is the Chief Scientific Officer at U.S. Oncology Research at Texas Oncology, Shenandoah, Texas. Dr. Moore is the Associate Director of Clinical Research in the Department of Gynecologic Oncology at the Stevenson Cancer Center in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. I am your host, Candace Hoffman. Dr. Coleman will begin our discussion. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, we're here for the second of three podcasts talking about PARP inhibitors and ovarian cancer. Uh, this has been, as I mentioned in the last podcast, a very exciting time for us. Uh, this is uh, obviously one of our most important drug uh, assets that we use in our patients with uh, uh, both frontline and, in some cases, recurrent, o- recurrent ovarian cancer. Um, and we've talked a lot about the efficacy and the and the and the story of how these drugs became available to us in management. Um, and to slightly recap that, we we talked about the preclinical work. We talked about uh, how it got into the clinic and showed how it could shrink tumors in molecularly annotated populations. And then we showed that it was uh, expanded into broader use as a, as a switch maintenance in, in platinum-sensitive recurrent ovarian cancer, and then ultimately into the frontline setting. So fortunately, we've had about a decade worth of experience with PARP inhibitors. Uh, they have um, uh, they've come to us most in, in a couple different formulations, uh, kind of midstream. We changed from the capsule formulation of uh, Alaprib to the tablet formulation. Um, and but with this, we've seen kind of a consistency not only in efficacy, but also in the effects on uh, on our patients. So the side effects, toxicities, etc. And so we thought we'd dedicate uh, this podcast to talking about the adverse events that we see with PARP inhibitors, uh, especially in patients that could be anticipated to be on a PARP inhibitor for for a long time. Uh, you may remember in the first podcast that we talked about. Some of these patients being, uh, many of them being on treatment through the anticipated uh, duration of exposure that, were, that was predefined by the study in the frontline setting, which could be as many as two to three years, depending on the drug. But in the recurrent setting, we've seen these given to the time of progression, and many people have been on these drugs for, many, for a long period of time. So we want to talk a little bit about what the impact this is, uh, can cause to patients, uh, their toxicities that we see as kind of immediate ones and those that are more long-term. And ultimately, I want to close with a discussion on one of the concerns that has been raised uh, even before we got started with PARP inhibitors in the clinic, and that's the risk for MDS and AML, secondary malignancies. So again, joining me today, uh, Dr. Kathleen Moore from the Stevenson Cancer Center at Oklahoma University. As many of you know, Dr. Moore uh, has been instrumental 
uh, in this uh, development story of PARP inhibitors um, and has led several trials, uh, including the uh, SOLO1 trial, which uh, really provided the first major hit in the front, frontline setting, demonstrating what we think will be now cures uh, for patients at a higher rate than we anticipated uh, without uh, using these drugs. So it's been quite a journey for us. So we're so pleased to be able to have Dr. Moore with us today. Katie, welcome, and thanks for uh, joining us for podcast number two. Absolutely, happy to be here. So why don't we start off with um, uh, just kind of like the general um, tolerance or tolerability of PARP inhibitors in your experience. Uh, you've obviously treated a lot of patients in kind of all the disease settings that we've mentioned. Uh, what's your kind of general impression as to the tolerance or tolerability of, of these drugs? That's a great question, and honestly, the best people to answer that question are our patients who we you know, subject to all of these therapies, um, you know, because I have sort of clinical trial data that I can comment on and then just direct patient experience. The, the clinical trial data would suggest, and I think accurately so, that PARP inhibitors are well tolerated by our patients, but not without some toxicity. And so, you know, what we, uh, how we counsel our patients is very consistent with what the clinical data, clinical trial data suggests that there's very frequent but low severity fatigue uh, and nausea. Those are the main things um, that are kind of almost ubiquitous, like over 60 to 70% of um, recipients of a PARP inhibitor will, will uh, have those symptoms, but usually just grade one or two when you're using uh, CTCAE 5.0 grading. Um, you can see anemia in about a quarter of patients that's severe enough to consider a transfusion. So that'd be grade three, less than eight. Uh, and then you can have about 20 to 25% of, of our patients complaining of sort of other GI toxicities like diarrhea or constipation or dyskusia, which can be bothersome. All of these are low grade with the exception of the anemia, but um, being low grade doesn't mean they're not bothersome. So, you know, it's a very different experience for um, our patients. And I think this really goes into the appropriate pretreatment counseling. Um, you know, patients have just finished six or eight or however many cycles of chemotherapy, usually given on a 21-day cycle where they get an infusion with steroids and the next day they usually feel pretty good. And then they have like three days of feeling pretty crummy and then they start to feel better and better and then we treat them again. So there's these peaks and troughs of, of toxicity. Now with oral, any oral medication, but we're talking about PARP inhibitors, you know, the peaks and troughs are gone and it's just this sort of constant low grade kind of a nuisance background uh, that for some patients can be very bothersome and other patients just sort of breeze through it. And so there's a lot of individualization um, in terms of how patients experience these toxicities and kind of the adjustments we need to make for each individual patient based on her perception of distress um, related to those side effects. Great. Yeah, thank you so much for that. So you mentioned some, um, you know, kind of classify these into uh, hematologic and non-hematologic. And as you mentioned, the, the hematologic toxicities we run into, uh, I guess they're more problematic or anemia, but we do see other um, hematologic toxicities, um, such as neutropenia and thrombocytopenia. And I wonder, you know, um, we've had a lot of experience with this, uh, these adverse events in the recurrent setting. 
um, and now more so now, uh, it, it, so much in the uh, in the frontline setting. But are all of these PARP inhibitors, rucaparib, uh, viliparib, niraparib, uh, olaparib, do they all have the same uh, potential for these adverse events? Maybe let me maybe just break it down into you know hematologic and non-hematologic. So. If, with respect to hematologic toxicity, are they all the same, or do we do we look at these uh, patients potentially differently based on the drug we choose? So they do have. So there's a lot of cl- what we call class effects of the um, of the PARP inhibitors, and we talked about those main ones with the GI toxicities and fatigue. Um, and then you have the class effects that are hematologic, but they those are the side effects where you do see some variation between the PARP inhibitors. Filipirib, you know, we kind of fairly or unfairly refer to it as the least potent PARP inhibitor, although it's quite a good PARP inhibitor, probably has the lowest um, amount of hematologic uh, toxicity from uh, anemia, uh, uh, thrombocytopenia, or neutropenia. And then we have olaparib, rucaparib, and niraparib, which on the surface are similar in terms of how potent they are. I think the next escalation up is talazoparib, which unfortunately is not a drug that is available to us for use in ovarian cancer, but olaparib, niraparib, and rucaparib are similar, but they do have differences. So you'll see across all three of them, it's about 25-ish percent of patients will have grade three or higher anemia. It was a little bit of wiggle room, but the confidence intervals overlap. So I think that that um, anemia is relatively mm-hmm. similar. Um, thrombocytopenia does vary though. So for olaparib and rucaparib, the incidence of grade three or higher thrombocytopenia is really negligible. It's only about 6%. And for niraparib with individualized starting dose, so based on baseline weight and baseline platelet count, if you use that to to, um, individualize your starting dose, you get about a 13% risk of grade three and up um, thrombocytopenia, which is much more in line with... um, acceptable than what it was when it was just a flat starting dose for everyone at 300, which for the vast majority of patients was too high. And that rate was closer to 30%. So now we're sitting about 13%. Neutropenia, uh, again, for olaparib and rucaparib, uh, grade three or higher, or like febrile neutropenia is almost not seen. Five-ish um, percent for grade three or higher, but febrile neutropenia you really don't see. And really for, again, with individualized starting dose with niraparib, it's a little bit higher, maybe in the 10% range, but we don't see a lot of complicated neutropenia with um, PARP inhibitors, so with any of them. So the real difference really comes down to the that kind of doubling of the severe thrombocytopenia risk um, from 6-ish to 13-ish percent um, between olaparib, rucaparib, and then up to niraparib. Okay, so 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 it sounds like you know we've done well with um, coming out of the blocks, like at the first dose, uh, with doing individualized dosing for neuraparib to combat some of the hematologic side effects, and for the others we start and then kind of monitor how the patient's ongoing, and and maybe for the listeners, maybe you could tell us, you know, what's your strategy for monitoring, you know, that first cycle across these patients with respect to their adverse events, like. What, how do you, what do you tell, what kind of orders do you write for that first cycle um, uh, across these three different uh, you know, drugs that we commonly use? What we do here is, uh, which I think is recommended across the board for niraparib, when you initiate niraparib, it's weekly labs for the first month or mm-hmm. two. 
really have to keep a close eye on the platelets. If, if um, even with individualized starting dose, we can still see the platelets fall. Uh, and so we really uh, pay close attention to those labs. I always sort of, when I speak about this, these aren't labs that you want coming in Friday after five and no one sees them till Monday. Like these are labs you really need to see in real time because if you see those platelets going down and it's grade, high grade one or grade two, you wanna hold. Um, so they don't come in as a grade four, you know, two days later. So for Narapurb, we are doing weekly until we're usually two cycles in and really solidly okay. And then we back off to once a month. Now, if you have to dose modify the Narapurb for hematologic toxicity, say you go from 300 to 200, that weekly monitoring has to restart, you know, until, the, until such point that you're stable for at least one you know, full cycle, if not two, and then you can back off, you know, and just do monthly monitoring from there. Uh, and so that's what we do for Neraparib. We also monitor blood pressure. We'll probably talk about that in a bit, but that's the other different um, aspect of the orders for Neraparib that we put in place is self blood pressure monitoring, not crazy like we do on bevacizumab, but at least once a week, we want to know what the blood pressure is just so we can monitor that over time and make sure that we are uh, making necessary adjustments to keep our patients really healthy. For rucaparib and olaparib, honestly, you do not need to do weekly labs. So we really start with um, once a cycle labs, uh, and we follow them from there. If you're going to see the grade three anemia with um, either of those drugs, we have actually nice time course data for olaparib that's been published. It, it happens like usually on the pre-cycle three labs. That's when you pick it up and you make the adjustments um, from there. Uh, if necessary. So I'm not opposed to weekly monitoring for those two, but really it's unnecessary. Even with the nuance of rucaparib is, of course, you see the um, transaminase elevations, a little bit of a sawtooth pattern with um, transaminases peaking like day eight to day 15, but it's not associated with High's Law. They resolve on their own. And honestly, I don't mean this to sound flippant, but I just don't want to know because when they come in for the pre-cycle two or cycle three, it's resolved, you know, and there's no real liver toxicity. And if something is happening, I'll pick it up at that point. So I don't want to be responding to things that are not clinically relevant. So we just check it once a cycle. Okay. So that, that makes sense. So in the first cycle with the rapid, we uh, monitor the labs more closely because of the effects on uh, hematologic toxicities and with the others, um, not doesn't seem to be so great during that first cycle. Obviously, we do see it uh, with these other drugs, but uh, we don't see it with such of um, you know such rapidity in that first cycle. I always like to relate that. Um, I remember one of the very first patients I treated back hey, several years ago with um, niraparib, uh, you know, on flat dosing. Uh, you know, I asked how she was doing. I had her come back in a week to see how she was doing. And, and I, she said, you know, I feel great, but, uh, you know, I've got this weird rash. And so I looked at her and she's got <laughs> a eye up and down her chest and legs with a 4,000 platelet count. I was like, okay, let's, uh, let's, uh, let's take care of this and, <laughs> and we'll, uh, we'll do some adjusting. And, you know, the good news is, though, at least with hematologic toxicity, we do have the flexibility of, of dose modifying. And obviously with NRAPR, we learned that we could actually modify that dose pre-treatment. Uh, or pre-initiation, and so that uh, can help reduce those uh, high-grade uh, adverse events. So we talked a lot about um, hemologic toxicity. What about non-hemologic toxicity? You touched a little bit on uh, the uh, transaminitis, if you want to call it that, um, that we see with rucaparib. Um, 
But we also see some other non-hemologic um, aberrations with PARP inhibitors as a class effect. And maybe, uh, maybe, maybe I will drift a little bit into that potential creatinemia that we've yeah. seen with, uh, with, with, this, uh, with these drugs. Um, you know, what, what exactly is that? And why do we, are we, should we be concerned? Well, I would never say we shouldn't be concerned, but but we do see, just like the liver function tests, we do see this sort of not clinically relevant bump in creatinine. It's mainly been reported with Rucaparib, where about 90% of patients will have some shift in their baseline creatinine. About 30% will bump into a different grade. Uh, mm-hmm. And Olaparib has the same thing. It's just not been classified as kind of precisely as rucaparib, it's about 20%. You don't see that with niraparib. And the reason you see it is that the drugs um, basically impact the um, OCT1 and MATE creatinine transporters. So it dislodges creatinine off of its transporters. So it becomes kind of free to measure in serum. It's not a reflection of worsening renal function. It's just you've sort of displaced it. So now you can measure more of it. Uh, and so, you know, I think the key things with you, when you see a shift in the baseline creatinine, when you start someone on a PARP is you do have to pay attention to it. You know, you may look at it and go, okay, that's probably just the rucaparib. And then you check it again and it's the same, you know, you've bumped up and then it plateaus and it's just hangs out there. Okay. That's the rucaparib and you're really pretty much fine there. Um, if you see it kind of going up and up and up, that's not the rucaparib or olaparib, like something is wrong. Um, and she either has intrinsic renal dysfunction or needs a stent or, you know, something else is going on and had mm-hmm. a routine from contrast load or something. So you have to work that up. Uh, so, so you do have to sort of pay attention to it and get a sense of it's just a shift in baseline for them. That's just kind of what you follow on part rather versus something that's increasing and if you're really unsure, you know, when um, just referencing your work, um, when you were still at MD Anderson, Rob, you know, looked at measuring creatinine clearance. And so you can do um, a 24-hour kind of urine collection and look at renal function a little more precisely in that way and be reassured that you're not having a, having a worsening renal function with that bump in creatinine just to reassure oneself. Um but most of the time, I feel like it's pretty clear just based on the trend of the creatinine rise that it is or isn't related. Great point. Great point. So um, so we talked about some of the uh, laboratory abnormalities. I think one of the ones that we mentioned early on that are actually probably even more problematic are, are things like asthenia and fatigue. And uh, I know for those uh, of our listeners here who probably you know are, don't have a lot of experience with that, um, you know, this could be pretty impactful. I remember... You know, I had a patient on uh, on one of the trials who was responding dramatically, and and it was just so exciting. And I here I was coming in there, bouncing off the walls. This is fantastic. This is going away. Your tumor keeps shrinking. You've been on it for over twelve months. And she's like, "Listen, I can't take it anymore. I can't move. I can't get out of my chair. You know, I, I appreciate that it's working, but on the other hand, I can't have a life. And so um, this is a tough. And I I think." Um, you know, maybe uh, for those of our listeners who maybe haven't had as much experience, how do you address that that adverse event? I mean, you're absolutely right. Fatigue and asthenia can be very bothersome to patients who are ready to kind of, especially we're using PARP in the front line now. Um, and so patients are done with chemo and they want to get back to their life. And we're giving them this two to three years of a PARP inhibitor, hopefully with some cure intent, but definitely trying to prolong their, their life. 
Um, and so it's important medically, but they're ready to feel good again. You know, and now we put them on something that quite frankly, when I start PARP inhibitors in patients after any line of therapy, but now frontline, I'll just say the first six weeks of this drug are not going to be fun. You know, you're like the fatigue <laughs> onset is within a week. The nausea onset was, is within three days. Um, and it peaks about, you know, three weeks in, four weeks in, and then it starts to get better and you accommodate to this new normal um, that for the majority of women uh, is acceptable. Patients will say they kind of just feel like a wet noodle or just like a wet sponge, just like they can do what they want to do, but just feels like squishier. They have to slog a little bit more, but they can still do what they want to do. But for some patients, it's more than that. And, and your patient is an example. And that's where I think it's important to remember a few things. One is you can dose interrupt um, before you dose modify. So in patients who are coming in going, look, I feel bad. I have an event coming. I want to go on a cruise. You know, my daughter's having a baby. I want to help take care of the baby next week. You can hold drug for a few days and let them feel better, especially when you've been on for a few months already. Just take a little, a few days and let them reground, uh, depending on how severe it was, you'll grade two, you can restart at the same dose. And a lot of times you can restart that and maintain dose. If it recurs again, then you can bring them down a dose. But dose interruptions kind of here and there throughout the years that we use PARP inhibitors are really helpful in helping patients just sometimes take a little breather from the background effect of these medicines. The other thing is that that's important to remember though, is that there's a lot of contributing things to fatigue. So um, not that the PARP is innocent, the PARP causes fatigue, but so do other things that compound it. So sleep hygiene, we are terrible, myself included. So I'm, you know, the pot calling the kettle black. Uh, we are terrible at addressing sleep hygiene well. And a lot of these medicines impact and cause insomnia. And so if you're tired, your fatigue is worse. So is your pain and so is depression. We're not very good at addressing depression. Even low-grade depression in our patients compounds fatigue. Um, anemia compounds fatigue. And so the other thing that I do before I start a patient on a PARP, and actually I try to do it before I start chemo, but sometimes I forget, is I always send like the nutritional labs, iron and folate, because in my part of the world, we just have a lot of nutritional deficiencies that make it more likely for them to get severe anemia. And so if I replace those up front, I can kind of mitigate that ahead of time to try and keep them moving. So kind of thinking about those other reasons that are maybe making the fatigue worse than what the PARP is doing and addressing those can often make the fatigue grade one or two again. And a patient can accept that and feel like that that's an acceptable way to live her life without modifying. So you really have to look at the whole picture, which honestly just takes time and some, you know, sleuthing sometimes. Yeah, that, that's some great sage advice. Yeah, dose interruption, dose modification are critical to maintain patients on treatment. You know, and we've had a, we've had our experience now. Um, we're trying to combine PARP with other drugs. Uh, chemotherapy has been too toxic, but obviously in the PALA one trial, we've combined it with bevacizumab, and we and uh, you know, fortunately, looking at that adverse event profile, it looks like we got basically each of them with their own individual toxicities, but we didn't see any additive um, or com combinatorial effects. So that's really great. 
We just have a couple of minutes left, or just a minute left, actually. And I just wanted to maybe before we close out, talk a little bit about this really severe, um, you know, kind of consideration of the second malignancy, so the MDS AML. Fortunately, this is not a common um, finding. Uh, it's obviously devastating when we do find it. But what what is this relationship to uh, to the PARP inhibitors, and um, uh, you know, how do we how do we kind of keep an eye out for it? So, so we're talking about basically treatment-related myeloid neoplasms, of mm -hmm. which AML and MDS are some, but there's many. There's just this spectrum of treatment-related myeloid neoplasms that we can see. And our patients are at risk for these really across the board because of some of the quote-unquote good things about ovarian cancer. There's nothing good about it, honestly. But on the positive side, we keep treating patients for years and years and years and things repetitively work until they don't. And so these tumors and, and more importantly, the bone marrow of our patients are exposed to many, many, many lines of DNA damaging therapy over years. Um, and so the biggest risk, honestly, of tumor-related myeloid neoplasms we're seeing now are it's like platinum, like the rise of platinum across all solid tumors, you see this bump in tumor-related myeloid neoplasms. So that's one and then PARP inhibitors, of course, are DNA-damaging agents. Um, and so we've added those into the mix as well, and we're actually tracking this now. So it's not a new thing, but we are seeing more of it. Um, and it is related not just to the PARP. PARP inhibitors don't cause this, but they contribute to it, along with repeated exposures to platinums and other you know, an anthracyclines, all the things that we use. So we don't see a lot of it in the front line, uh, even with now seven years of follow-up in SOLO1, which is a small study, but it, we're, we're not seeing any signals that it's any different from five years of follow-up with Palif, um and Prima, for example, the rate's about 1.5 to 2%, which is probably our baseline rate. And there are patients who for some reason are at risk, and you know, it's not chip mutations. We don't really know like what it is that tips somebody over early on, but there is that group. Um, where we see the bigger numbers coming in are in the recurrent setting when, in patients that have seen several lines of platinum-based therapy and then PARP inhibitors and have a BRCA mutation. So the largest risk was seen in the Ariel um, 4 study amongst the BRCA population who are very heavily pretreated, all BRCA. So you already have a germline deficiency in how you repair DNA. And the rate there was about 13%, actually a little bit higher. But those are very late line, very heavily pretreated tumors and bone marrow. So we're learning this. Um, we're trying to identify who's at risk. Um, the move to PARP in the front line is appropriate because it works better there. And if we're going to cure anybody, we're going to do it in the front line until we can prevent this, this dread disease. And... If you cure people or keep them from having to get more chemo quickly, you decrease the risk of just repeated exposure of bone marrow, and we're not going to see these high rates of, of tumor-related myeloid neoplasm. So, so I think that we've really addressed it by moving into the front line, but it doesn't mean any of us are satisfied with any of these sorts of development of any of these sorts of, of malignancies because they are devastating. Um, I will say when I would see these early in my career, and I've been doing this now for quite a while, they were just universally lethal right away. Like you diagnosed them and unfortunately our patients just died and there was really no intervention at all. 
now when we see them, I feel like our medical oncology colleagues who are leukemia experts and sometimes lymphoma experts do actually have effective therapies for some of our patients, especially those that are in remission or have excellent disease control. So you can buy some time, but it's still it's still really limiting in terms of what else you can offer that patient for her ovarian cancer. So it's still really a, a terrible um, development, but I feel not as dismal as it was a decade ago because of the advances that our colleagues in Hemonc have made. Yeah, that's for sure. They really have uh, uh, expanded that field quite a bit. Well, that's all the time we have today. Um, again, today we talked about toxicity of PARP inhibitors as they have uh, migrated out of the uh, recurrent setting to the frontline setting. Uh, their anticipated hemologic and non-hemologic toxicities, uh, their uh, toxicity associated with single agents and combinations, and, uh, and as you just heard, the uh, late effects that we see with myeloid-related uh, um, secondary malignancies. So um, great discussion. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Moore. Um, and we look forward to uh, PARP, uh, the uh, third uh, podcast on PARP that we'll, we'll discuss a little bit about where this field is moving. Uh, and uh, so excited. So please come back and join us for the third installment of this uh, program. Uh, and with that, I'll be signing off. Uh, this, um, Dr. Rob Coleman at uh, U.S. Oncology here in Houston, Texas. And joining me was uh, uh, Dr. Katie Moore at the Stevenson Cancer Center in University of Oklahoma. Take care. Remember to receive your credit and evaluate this program. Please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash ovarian cancer too. You can find all of the episodes in this series and all of our other podcasts on your favorite podcast streaming services or download our Morning Commute app. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you.